0: Rusty Quill Presents. Hi, friends. Before we get into this thing I'm about to present, I'd I'd like to let you know we are currently crowdfunding for Season 2 of Wireland Ranch, as well as a new limited series called The Dope Show. In the process, you could also help a struggling creator. That's, That's me. That's me I'm referring to. Link to the crowdfund is in the show notes. Consider helping us with it and... If you'd like a more permanent way to help, seek us out at patreon.com forward slash wireland ranch. While we don't put anything behind a paywall, we sure could use your help. Thanks for listening, friends. We've got your back, and we know that you have ours. Hi friends, as you know, I have just a tiny little interest in history, the history of money and power specifically. It is interesting to observe one seemingly unrelated event drive the deltas of money forward in a hundred different directions and then always back to the top. And the cycle of tragedy, overreaction, money, power, tragedy produces things that enrage us things that bewilder us, and things that just flat out make us laugh. So I thought I'd start a thing to discuss some of those in a less fictional setting, really put the spotlight on some top-tier skullduggery. Sometimes with guests, and sometimes without, I kind of decided all this this morning when I was thinking about how to celebrate the 4th of July, so now I am doing this today because the mind is a labyrinth with No solution, but that does not mean we should not map its halls. So, to celebrate the 4th of July, let us discuss that time a bank took the mask off and told its shareholders that one voice, one vote freedom had died because it drowned in all the money. Yes, friends, today on the first episode of Wireland Now, let's talk the Citigroup memos of 2005 and 2006. So, welcome, friends, to a new nonfiction twice weekly podcast with your favorite black magic analyst, me, Joseph Rutledge. It is 2005. Three years from now, the entire economy will collapse under the weight of more than a few banks and corporations, and specifically, six. CEOs, Richard Fold of Lehman Brothers, John Mack of Morgan Stanley, Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, Ken Lewis of the Bank of America, and Kathleen Corbet of Standard & Poor's. Now this is not to mention Timothy Geithner, chair of the New York Federal Reserve and everyone's favorite war criminal refurbished and reimagined as good boy artist George W. Bush. Just four years previous, the greatest black magic trick ever performed occurred when three buildings fell into their own footprints and somehow crushed privacy along with the little freedom we had left beneath and we should never forget LOL. On October 5th, Citigroup released a memo to those under their private banking classification, i.e. customers with a million or more in liquid cash in their accounts. And this memo was called Plutonomy, Buying Luxury, Explaining Global Imbalances. The bullet point summary of the memo gets to the heart of things very quickly. And a quick side note, bear with me because I'm going to be reading some of this memo straight through because I don't need to gussy anything up to Wireland's status here as the authors did a fine job of that themselves. It starts...
1: The world is dividing into two blocks: the plutonomy and the rest. The US, UK, and Canada are the key plutonomies, economies powered by the wealthy. Continental Europe, aside from Italy and Japan, are in the egalitarian block.
0: It goes on to say that while they were researching the irrelevance of oil equities to the rich, they happened upon some big picture information and implications and those implications can be summarized thusly you do not matter the only economy that matters at all is the one they've built for themselves constructed of companies and products you've likely never heard of and anything you might think matters in your life to them anything you might think affects them in any way your labor your time your families is nothing more than an illusion. An illusion designed to keep you busy and distracted so they can continue doing what they do. It should also be pointed out here that those key words mean so much more than they let on.
1: The irrelevance of oil equities to the rich.
0: For so long, we've been told that oil is fundamental to everything, that to seek alternate energy methods would only waste time and further harm an already lame economy. But here they are saying it doesn't really matter to them, which makes one wonder why the billionaire fight to keep oil alive. Well, there's one reason I'd like for you to consider. Could it maybe be that maintained focus on destructive worldwide habits are exceedingly successful at keeping your life in the miserable state it is in so that we fight and skirmish against the world around us and never point that fight towards them? and this friends is all on the first page of a 35 page memo a memo that was followed up by another in march of the next year that one called revisiting plutonomy the rich getting richer now here in a few moments i'm going to start throwing some numbers at you and i ask that you remember these numbers are all from the mid-aughts and have been further exacerbated by time inflation and the steady propping up of the rich by our legislators and lawmakers most of which are in the pockets of the very companies they protect. The memo goes on to further flesh out its summary with a few cheeky remarks and stark truths about the world in which you find yourself. Here are a few of the highlights of the thesis. The world is divided into two blocks, as mentioned above, the plutonomy and the egalitarian blocks, and that these two must have each other to exist at all. If imbalance exists in one place, it must be rectified in another through means of equality, meaning, without the relative equality of Europe and Japan, vast inequality could not exist within the Plutonomies. We are then informed that Plutonomies have existed in many forms, such as 16th century Spain, 17th century Holland, the Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties in the US, and friends. Do you remember what occurred at the end of the Roaring Twenties? A Great Depression on a global scale and one of the worst wars in the history of mankind. It goes on to say, and this is a direct quote,
1: In a plutonomy, there is no such animal as the U.S. consumer, or the U.K. consumer, or indeed, the Russian consumer. There are rich consumers, few in number, but disproportionate in the gigantic slice of income and consumption they take. And there are the rest, the non-rich, the multitudinous many but only accounting for surprisingly small bites of the national pie. Consensus analyses that do not tease out the profound impact of the plutonomy on spending power, debt loads, savings rates, and hence current account deficits, oil price impacts, etc focus on the average consumer are flawed
0: from the start because you lovely friends and allies do not matter you are insignificant and your life barely registers to them at all the memoranda summary concludes with this
1: we think plutonomy is here is going to get stronger its members swelling from globalized enclaves in the emerging world we think a plutonomy basket of stocks should continue to do well these toys for the wealthy have pricing power and staying power they are giffen and goods
0: and what is a gift and good i hear you ask well friends it has a few definitions but what they are referring to in this case is a good or service that is consumed more the more expensive it becomes meaning the further out of reach it is for you and i the more it is desired by those who can afford it it is the rag at the Dune dinner party that is rung out into the dry desert heat. It is the Bugatti. It is the Giga Yacht and the Antilia Mansion. It is a thing that you will never touch. The memo then goes on to spit out statistic after statistic of the stark inequality cultivated in the Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties. I'm going to read that to you verbatim and... If you find yourself wanting to follow along, you can find both of these memos on the Wireland Patreon, entirely available to anyone. The memorandum says,
1: Let's dive into some of the details. As figure one shows the top 1% of households in the US, about 1 million households, accounted for about 20% of overall US income in the year 2000 slightly smaller than the share of income from the bottom 60% of households put together. That's about 1 million households with 60 million households both with similar slices of the income pie. Clearly, the analysis of the top 1% of U.S. households is paramount. The usual analysis of the average U.S. consumer is flawed from the start. To continue with the U.S., the top 1% of households also account for 33% of net worth, greater than the bottom 90% of households put together, and it gets better or worse depending on your political stripe.
0: It really says that shit, guys. It it really fucking says that. The top 1%
1: of households account for 40% of financial net worth, more than the bottom 95% of households put together.
0: With the exception of the boom in the roaring 1920s, this super-rich group kept losing of its share of incomes in World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II until the early 80s. Why?
1: The answers are unclear, but the massive loss of capital income, dividend, rents, and interest in common, but not capital gains, from progressive corporate and estate taxation is a possible candidate. The rise in their shares since the mid-80s might be related to the reduction in corporate and income taxes, as figure 3 shows. While in the early 20th century capital income was the big chunk for the top 0.1% of households, the resurgence in their fortunes since the mid-80s was mainly from oversized salaries. The rich in the U.S. went from coupon-clipping, dividend-receiving rentiers, to a managerial aristocracy indulged. By their shareholders.
0: So they are saying that the rich should not have lost out on those depression era and wartime dollars and to make up for that paid themselves gigantic salaries under the guise of Reaganomics. So on this most illustrious of holidays, let us take a moment to think fondly on the death of Ronald Reagan. May he forever burn in the furthest reaches of hell. The memo then goes on to theories of why and how the Plutonomy exists, and I will spare you most of this, but there is one that is particularly interesting, the dopamine-driven Plutonomy.
1: Another quote. Dopamine, a pleasure-inducing brain chemical, is linked with curiosity, adventure, entrepreneurship, and helps drive results in uncertain environments. Populations generally have about 2% of their members with high enough dopamine levels for the curiosity to emigrate. Ergo, emigrant nations like the US and Canada and increasingly the UK have high dopamine-intensity populations. If encouraged to keep the rewards of their high-dopamine-induced risk-seeking entrepreneurialism, these countries will be more prone to wealth waves unequally distributed.
0: I myself personally believe the day science linked dopamine to economy it simultaneously performed a five-finger death blow to the American dream and thus any kinship we had the poor and middle class had with our monetary superiors. After establishing the creation of the managerial aristocracy, the memo lists six driving factors of the plutonomy and how they should be viewed by society. Those six factors are
1: one an ongoing technology revolution. 2. Capitalist-friendly governments and tax regimes. 3. Globalization that rearranges global supply chains with mobile, well-capitalized elites and immigrants. 4. Greater financial complexity and innovation. 5. The rule of law. And 6. Patent protection.
0: Notice that rule of law finds itself on that list. Kind of makes a person wonder what the police are really for, huh? After listing these driving factors, it then says this immaculate piece of fuckery.
1: Society and governments need to be amenable to disproportionately allow and encourage the few to retain the fatter profit share. The managerial aristocracy like in the Gilded Age, the Roaring Twins, and the thriving 90s needs to commandeer a vast chunk of that rising profit share, either through capital income or simply paying itself a lot. We think that despite the post-bubble angst against celebrity CEOs, the trend of cost-cutting, balance sheet-improving CEOs might just give way to risk-seeking CEOs, re-leveraging, going for growth, and expecting disproportionate compensation for it.
0: And do bear in mind that bubble they are talking about is not the housing bubble, but the one before that, the tech bubble. Because in a plutonomy, a bubble must always exist, designed to burst and leave us farther at the bottom, while those that cause it continue to flourish at the top. The memo then goes on to celebrate the fact that when the rich see their profits rise and they gain confidence in their wealth, they save less money. When the rich are spending more and saving less, it affects the overall household savings rates in the country and overshadows any and all of the things you and I do to participate in this economy, which, according to this memo, is little, if at all.
1: To summarize so far, plutonomy see the rich absorb a disproportionate chunk of the economy. Their decision to lower their savings rate, often corresponding to the asset booms that often accompany plutonomy, Has a massive impact on reporting aggregate numbers like savings rates, current account deficits, consumption levels, etc. This imbalance and inequality expresses itself in the standard scary global imbalances that so worry the bears and most observers, but they do not worry us at all.
0: I need for all of you to understand that you do not factor into their thinking. And therefore, they should not factor into yours. Finally, they go into the possibilities of backlash against and potential destruction of the plutonomy. And let me tell you, friends, they are not concerned about that at all. They talk about immigration and how it could affect the plutonomy through shortchanged and outsourced labor. A development which has occurred since and shows no sign of letting up. Make the poorest people in the world produce your shit so you can continue robbing the world blind. They also lament the problem of the one-person, one-vote system as a means to the destruction of the Plutonomy and friends. We have seen that system endure some dramatic changes since the release of this memo, haven't we? Namely, through Citizens United, astroturfing, and gerrymandering. Almost like those changes were thought up in a think tank by the same people who read this memo upon its release. So, friends, this 4th of July, my proposal to you is this. The only way we ever change anything, the only way we move forward past any of this, is to stop participating. If we don't matter to their economy, let us see if that is true. Don't work for one week. Don't load a truck or pay a bill or buy their gas. Sit at home for a single week. Don't participate. Don't protest or riot or make a single decision. Just chill for one week. Within three days, they will have passed legislation to make calling into your job illegal. They will outlaw strikes as the dementia patient you call your president did in December of last year. They will do anything and everything to stop you, and that is how you will know whether or not you factor in to their economy. And once they do all that, well, friends, you know there's only one thing left to say. Look them in their eyes. Give them the same fuck you they've given to you your whole life, and walk away. We don't need them. We never have. We never will. I hope you will join me as we explore more of these things that led us to where we are, more of the things that have led to Wireland now. Episode 9 of Wireland Ranch will be out on July 10th, and it spans about 10,000 years, so you won't want to miss that. I'm your host, Joseph Rutledge, friends. See you again very soon.